1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We are working our way through uh, this text, through this book, through a series of texts here over the last couple of weeks where uh, we, we've been working through some of the most uh, highly debated, hotly debated, analyzed, uh, discussed texts in all of Scripture. And today will be another one of those texts that has been uh, analyzed, chewed up, spit out, turned over, uh, time and time again looked at from every angle possible. Um, it's a text that is significant uh, in its implications, not just in uh, n- not just in kind of theologically where we stand and where we where we line up on some things, but but in the day to day application of what we do here as a church. Uh, renowned leadership expert. You guys may have heard of John Maxwell. He's written over 70 books on leadership. I can just tell you, if you've read one, you've read all 70. They say pretty much the same thing. Uh, But one of his uh, famous maxims is everything rises and falls on leadership. And that's true in in any organization. He he doesn't just write for the church. He talks about, uh, you know, a team, an organization, a business, a church. And that phrase carries with it all kinds of implications. And chief among them is the critical nature of those that are given the task of leadership. But the question immediately arises, who is it that should lead? A company can choose a CEO or a board of directors. A team needs captains. A business is free to hire the type of CEO they would like. They can hire a a numbers-focused person that's more of like an an accountant to run uh, their business. They can can hire an aggressive risk-taker. They can hire a socially uh, aware and socially conscious leader. They can go in all kinds of different directions with who leads their company. They are free to do that based on the things that they deem to be valuable. A team can hire an offensive coach or a defensive coach, a big charisma guy. He can hire a good recruiter, all kinds of conservative-minded coach. You can go in a lot of different directions whenever you pick a coach. All are options. But what about a church? What criteria do we use to choose our leader? Or is it leaders and leader is not even the right word is a pastor the default leader or someone else and what is the nature of that leadership what does it look like what is the makeup of that leader are we free to choose whom we'd like or are there restrictions a design a model are we given a certain blueprint that says this is what it looks like to be the leader of a church and then are those leaders free to lead however they would want or is there a design to that too All of those questions and so many more are packed into that little phrase, everything rises and falls on leadership. So my goal this morning, and it's no small task, is to try to answer those questions, at least most of them, and I think point us in the right direction where even if we can't answer them all this morning, where we can go to find those answers. And we've got a lot to cover. But before we do that, I want to briefly just kind of, kind of say to, to, to some of you, kind of address some of you sitting out there, the idea of sitting through a message about church leadership is no big deal for many of you. But for others, you're already very uncomfortable with this topic. You're already very uncomfortable. Either A, because you're not sure what I'm going to say, and you're already assuming you're going to take issue with what I have to say. Uh, and so you're a little bit defensive, or for others, you're very skeptical because of the nature of what church leadership has looked like. It takes all of about half a second for you to go on Twitter or uh, any social media feed and find all kinds of examples where church leadership has completely failed on numerous levels. And so the idea that someone would stand up here and talk about church leadership almost feels the, the cynicism immediately begins to build. And I feel that I understand that. But others of you, you've been hurt by church leadership. You've gone through, uh, you've gone through some challenges with, with other churches. You've gone through uh, some difficult things with, with churches, and you've been hurt by church leadership. And so for me to stand up here and, and, and talk about church leadership, it's not so much defensiveness or skepticism so much as it is just kind of a general wariness about the whole conversation because so much of church leadership has seemed so disingenuous to you and you have experienced so much hurt. I just want to say that no doubt much of that is warranted, and I wish it were not true, and that none of you had seen a bad example of church leadership, let alone suffered 
under bad church leadership. And please know that as best as I can, whenever we address this topic, that I want to consider all of those things as we talk through this subject this morning. However, it is precisely because of the rampant brokenness within church leadership that exists that we have to talk about what good leadership looks like. We cannot just kind of hope that things go the right direction because, because it's too uncomfortable to talk about. We must set the bar and then strive for the bar, not simply just kind of avoid it and hope all ends well. So let's jump into 1 Timothy chapter 3 and kind of get started here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. That's how it starts. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. We didn't make it very far, did we? So the saying is trustworthy. Uh, I'm going to stop there. And this is not a major point, but I think it's worth pointing out. I think the chapter break is all wrong right here. Now, the chapters and the verses, as they are laid out, that is not inspired by God. That was added by uh, a, a bishop, a priest somewhere a uh, long time ago in history. But not at all uh, are, are, are they uh, inspired by God. And in fact, in the Greek text, you can't tell where oftentimes where sentences begin, where sentences start, where paragraphs begin, where paragraphs start. I think this phrase, this saying is trustworthy, actually, begin, or actually belongs at the end of chapter 2. I think what Paul is doing is he's putting a period on his thought in chapter 2 where he ends by talking about how women shall be saved through childbearing if the, and, and if they continue on in uh, faith, good works, and holiness. And I think he's referring to that saying because that feels more like a saying than what we're actually getting ready to look at here. This isn't a saying that's coming up. This is instructions on church leadership. So I think that that belongs at the end of chapter 2, and it kind of puts a, a finer point on the end of chapter 2. Now, it could go at the beginning of chapter 3, and really all, all it's doing is now introducing a new idea. So whether it's ending an old idea or introducing a new idea, it functionally saves, or serves the same purpose, which is to, to start a new thought and to kind of keep us going in uh, a direction. So again, it's not a big deal, but I do think it puts a finer point on the end of chapter Two. And we'll talk a little bit about why uh, that is, uh, that is Im- important. Because if you were here last week, you know that, uh, that my contention, my explanation for chapter 2 is that chapter 2 is a highly contextualized argument rooted in the culture of Ephesus. But here I think he moves to, again, whether he's, he's ending a thought or starting a new thought, I think he's moving to another thought here. So uh, let's just keep going in verse 1. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 13. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, which the word overseer, you can also just insert elder in there, that all works together. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by the outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy or, uh, or dishon- for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons, and if they prove themselves blame, if they prove themselves blameless, their wives, or that word could be translated the women, either one, their wives or the women likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith. That is in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's our text for the morning. That's what we're going to work through here. And, and basically what Paul does here is in this chapter, he kind of shifts gears, all right? Chapter 3 serves as a hinge for this book. 
The whole, the whole book kind of turns on this. In chapters 1 and 2, as we've seen, he's addressing much of what's happening outside the church, and he's addressing much of, of kind of the, the larger culture that Ephesus is planted in. And then he has chapter 3 here where he talks about church leadership. And then as we'll see over the next few weeks in chapters 4, 5, and 6, almost everything he goes to address from here on out is internal problems to the church at Ephesus. And so chapter 3 is kind of the hinge on which the book turns. We already saw in our first week in this series, how the end of chapter three and that little uh, other trustworthy saying that he has in there, uh, kind of where he says, this is the reason that I'm writing. Uh, that's there at the end of chapter three. So chapter three kind of serves, like I said, as, as the hinge, like it's everything kind of flows in one direction or another out of this chapter. And so uh, he, he begins right here and, and he starts to lay out his criteria for the leadership and the offices of the church. And he gives us two offices for leadership, elders and deacons, or overseers and deacons. Elders, overseers, those words are used inter interchangeably in the New Testament, elders and deacons. And then with those offices, he gives us a whole list of qualifications for that leadership, some of which are pretty obvious, some of which we kind of have to fill in the gaps a little bit with some wisdom of how we apply them. Uh, and, and he kind of walk, walk, works through all these different things and just kind of lays out this list. And listen, when Paul lays out a list in, in his writing, it's, it's my take almost every time that Paul isn't intending to write an exhaustive list of things. So you can talk about that whenever he talks about spiritual gifts. You can talk about that whenever he talks about uh, like a, a variety of sins that are being addressed. I don't, think he's, I don't think he's ever intending things to be exhaustive so much as he's trying to give us a general picture of things. He's trying, to he's trying to say, hey, here's how these things can work out. He's just rattling things off here. I don't think he sat down and said, all right, let me think of everything an elder needs. I think he's trying to give a general picture of what an elder should look like. And so he begins by commending the work of an elder, which is good to note, because there is a, 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 a strand of teaching within the Christian church that says all ambition is bad ambition, that there is, that there is, uh, uh, that, that, that basically anyone who, who aspires to something bigger has kind of left their place. And that's just something Paul immediately says, no, 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 no. This is good for you to want to be an elder. Now, you can't be a glory hound. There's no place for that in church leadership. But pursuing eldership is, is an ambition that is good and right and to be commended. And then comes this list, this whole list of things that describe the nature and character of an elder. Like I said, some of these are pretty self-explanatory. They don't take a whole lot for me to lay them out for you. They're just right there. But some of these require a little bit more explanation to figure out how to uh, apply them. First, it, it, I, I don't even think the first thing that he lists is its own requirement, but instead kind of the overarching theme of the whole list. If you want to summarize what an elder should be, he should be above reproach. I think everything else that flows out of this list is is really just kind of going back to that idea, right? So the, the idea of being above reproach is the, the general character and nature of an elder. And these are some things that Paul says, like this, and like this, and like this, and like this. These are things to consider. Um, and so, so essentially, the elder should be above reproach. Everyone who has something to say about this person should probably be saying good things, he starts off by saying that, that he should be a husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, which tells us two things. One, he should be male, and two, if he is married, that he shouldn't be polygamous, or he shouldn't be seeking out other relationships with women. We're not sure polygamy is in view here. We're not sure how prominent it would have been in Ephesus in this place, but that may be what Paul is talking about. But either way, it still comes across the same way. He should be a one-woman man, but also that he should be a man. So if you grew up or if you've uh, been around church, you've probably also heard that this idea that he is, uh, that he is, he is a, a married man or uh, a, a one-woman man, that he has a husband of one wife, oftentimes that has been applied in the idea of um, uh, that an elder can't be divorced, Right? And so a lot of churches that you maybe have been a part of, you've heard, is that uh, the, a divorce in the past automatically, 
automatically kind of removes that person from, uh, from leadership. But I don't think that's correct. I think divorce is something that has to be uh, thought through. You have to be able to talk about it, discuss as to the reason, the context, and a whole other host of things. Divorce might disqualify a man, but it might not. It kind of depends on how things happen, especially if that divorce came before someone was a believer. Let's just take Paul for an, for an example. So Paul was, a, was an apostle. He was a church planner. He was undoubtedly an elder at these churches. Now, Paul was single. Paul didn't have a wife, but we also know that Paul was a murderer, right? So we know that from the, from the book of Acts. And so if you're going to say that a murderer can be an elder, but a, but a, a, a divorced person cannot, then effectively what you're saying is, you know what, you'd be better off if you, uh, if you just took care of your ex-wife instead of divorcing your ex-wife, right? And then you would still be qualified for church leadership. Well, that doesn't make any sense, obviously. Um, and so I, I don't think we can say that, that, that a divorced person is not allowed to be, a divorced man is not allowed to be an elder. It just depends on the context and what happens there. There's, a, there's an amount of wisdom and discernment that is required. The idea here is that the person is known for his faithfulness to his wife. But back to the fact that elders are men, which obviously is, is the, the elephant in the room whenever we begin talking about this. It is the, the big thing that is out there. And I'll be honest, I'm almost not sure where to start here. Because I could spend the next month talking about different, way, different implications with this and kind of trying to put things together. The, the short answer is, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a little bit of a short answer, and then we're going to continue through this list. And then I'm going to come back on the end of this when I talk about the nature of uh, the, the elder task and what elders are to do. So I'm going to give you this answer about why elders are, are, are the role is limited to men kind of in two parts, because I think there's so much more outside of the context of 1 Timothy 3 that informs this, uh, this decision. But the short answer for now, uh, and to kind of wrap this up for the, the moment until we come back to it, is that Paul clearly lists men as, as elders. And then if you go down to the list for deacons, he gives many of the same requirements for deacons, but he also says either the women or their wives. It would be my contention that the, it's the same word, and, and in the Greek you're supposed to be able to tell in the context which one uh, is being referred to. I can't tell for sure. You could, you could convince me either way whether it is he, he's talking about the wives of the deacons or he's talking about uh, women who are deacons there in that passage. To me, reading through that, the, the flow of, of, of Paul's argument in the deacons is that I think he is talking to the women. And so as we'll talk about here with the deacons here in a few minutes, I think the, the argument is that there are male deacons and there are women deacons, so deaconesses if you would like to call them that. And we'll talk about the role of the deacons here in just a few minutes. But either way, the fact that he addresses both men and women as deacons, but there's no addressing to women at all in the part wherever it talks about the elders, I think is, is, is a hint, an indication to me that he is talking about men as elders. So he, he goes through this and, and he, he talks about each of these different things. And it doesn't, make, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that he would lay out these requirements for elders and not talk about their wives the same way he does deacons because the household is in view for elders. And so it would make sense that if, if, he is okay, if he's going to talk about the wives of the deacons, then he would need to talk about the wives of the elders as well. But he doesn't because I don't think that the wives are what's in view. I think it's women serving in the role. And there's no women serving in that role as Elder. So here's the point I'm trying to make. Paul addresses men and women as deacons, but he never mentions the women in his list of elders. Why? I'd argue because there were no women elders. You say, well, hang on just a second. Why is it that last week, the, the, the verse right before these, uh, it, so much of it was conditional upon what was happening in Ephesus? Why, why, maybe that's why Paul excluded some of the women in Ephesus as elders because, uh, because so much was happening in the context. Why is it that one is culturally uh, appropriated and culturally uh, a, a cultural prohibition, whereas just a couple of verses later, that doesn't apply? And I would say, you might be right. That might be the case. It might be that Paul is okay with women as elders, but I don't think so. If you were to look in Titus chapter 1, 
you'll see that Paul writes to another young pastor, but in an entirely different context that he writes in, uh, in 1 Timothy. He's not writing to a pastor in Ephesus, but a pastor in Crete. And the pastor in Crete is not dealing with any of these issues of female superiority or a, a woman who is kind of domineering in her teaching or any of that kind of stuff. He's not dealing with any of that stuff. Instead, it's a totally different context, but the list in Titus 1 is almost exactly the same as the list in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's almost identical in the things that he puts out there, but in an entirely different context. It's hard for me to see how it's a cultural issue when he lays out the same list to multiple cultures. There's more that I'll come back to at the end of this, but the short, the short answer is the, the reason that I think that the elders are limited to men is because that's the only way that Paul sees them or refers to them in the New Testament. It's the only way that Paul, uh, that, that Paul addresses it at all. And so if you're going to say that, women, uh, that Paul's okay with women being elders, then that's going to be at best an argument from silence. And you're going to have to work through and, and, and define why all of that is cultural. And again, I'm going to come back to this here in a minute and kind of give a little bit of a more full-throated answer to that. But that's the short answer coming straight out of this text. And instead of me going through each of these items throughout the rest of this chapter and kind of trying to define each one and just kind of checking off the list as we go through, I'm going to kind of separate these into some categories to help us out. David Platt does a good job uh, of looking at these texts. He, he kind of puts together the text of 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and he, he kind of separates the, the, the requirements of an elder into four different categories. And so we'll put these up here and basically what it is is these are the questions that you need to ask these are the four categories to lay out there here's what you need to ask of an elder is he self-controlled is he wise is he peaceable in other words is he trying to start a fight all the time is he gentle is he a sacrificial giver is he humble is he patient is he honest is he disciplined so these are all the things in, the, in an elder's personal life. These are all the things that Paul wants you to consider about the nature and character of an elder. So that's one area that you need to consider that comes out of these lists. The second area that, that comes up is in his family life and in his home. And note, this applies to the household. Whenever Paul addresses the nature of an elder and kind of what the house looks like, he's not talking about every kid that the, that the elder has ever had. He's talking about how does he function within his household? What does it look like within his household with those that are there that he are char he's charged with caring for and, 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 uh, and discipling? So in his family life and in his home, is, the, is, is he the elder in his home? Does he function that way in his home? If he's passive at home, then you're not going to want to put a passive person in the eldership of the church because he's going he's he's to work out his leadership in the same way. So is he the elder in his home? If he's single, is he self-controlled? If he's married, is he fully committed to his wife? That's the one woman man. If he has children, do they honor him? Now, this is not saying, there's, there's all kinds of debate about that, that phrase in there whenever it talks about this. This is not saying that, that you know, the, the, kids have to be, the kids have to be perfect. I think the idea here is we, we all know the, um, the stereotype of the pastor's kid, right? The stereotype of the pastor's kid is the pastor's kid is the rebellious one. According to Scripture, that should not be a stereotype that, that gets played out. The idea here is that the pastor has cared for his home and managed his home in such a way that, that if that management and that caring of his household is transferred to the church, that it would produce similar results. And so there's a, there's a layer of wisdom that's required here where you can analyze an elder and not say, are they a perfect dad? Did they get it right every time? Is that exactly how I think parenting should look like? Because I think there is a wide girth that God gives us of how we parent, depending on your gifting, the temperament of you, of your children. I don't think there is one prescribed, this is what a godly parent looks like. I think there's a lot of different ways 
to do that. So the question is, is the way that this elder has chosen to manage his home and care for his home and, and, and lead his home, is it a way that would, uh, that, that would play out in the church and encourage similar results? So that's the idea behind that one. Third, in his, uh, you want to look at the, the, the third category, in his social and in his business life. Is he kind? Is he hospitable? Is he a friend of strangers? Does he show favoritism? Does he have a blameless reputation? Not, not perfect, but above reproach in the sense that, that nobody's going to be able to come, like if, if you put something out there, nobody's going to be able to come and, and, and uh, bring charges against them. I know of one church that whenever an elder candidate is up for, uh, for uh, nomination and then for a vote, uh, part of their process and their vetting is they will take out an ad in the local paper and they will say, if anyone has anything bad to say about this guy, come tell us because we're about to make him an elder at our church. That's the idea of what we're looking at here is everyone, everything's on the table. How they are at home, how they are in public, how they are with their wife, how they are in those of, with those that they are discipling, how they are in, in every sphere of life is on the table whenever we talk about elders. And finally, in his spiritual life, how they are when they are alone. Does he make disciples of all nations? Does he love the word? Is he a man of prayer? Is he holy? Is he gracious? These are all characteristics to think of. The, the, the whole picture is what's in view here. And again, I think this is what Paul is getting at. It's not so much that every one of these little details Paul sat down and said, let me create this perfect list. I think what Paul is trying to create is you have an all-encompassing view of what the nature of an elder is supposed to be. Does it mean that they have to be perfect? Absolutely not. Goodness sakes, no. But it does mean that all of these areas are on the table and you should, you should consider all of these areas. Are there other ways to ask these questions, other things that you should be able to look at? For, for sure. There's, there, there could be other ways to talk about it that Paul doesn't list here, but it's all going to be under the same rubric. Are they, under, are they above reproach? That is going to be the question. And no one makes this list perfectly. But let's also be clear about this. We can't just kind of squint and look the other way for some of this stuff too. Far too many people are quick to talk about this list as though being a man is the only requirement. There is a lot more to it than that. And I've seen plenty of pastors argue for male-only elders, uh, but don't come close to checking the boxes in some of these other areas. They might, be, um, uh, they, they might be a male and say, therefore, I am qualified for church leadership, but you, you spend about 30 seconds on their Twitter feed and you're going to know they're quarrelsome. You're going to know they're looking for a fight. You're going to know that they're not humble or teachable. That person is, is 100% disqualified. They have removed themselves from the qualifications of an elder. They may have pastor or elder on their bio, but that doesn't fit the type of person that they are in, in their social media profile. Now, whether they're that way in person or not, I don't know. A lot of people talk a big game on social media that don't so much in person, but maybe they are. But all of that stuff is in view. You can't pick and choose here. Paul wants these men to be men that you can point to and ask this question. I think this is kind of what I boil it all down to whenever I consider what it would mean for those that, are, uh, that, that, that would be elders of our church. If our whole church, if everyone in our church followed them and replicated them, would we be a healthy church or would we be falling apart? That's the question. If they did... If they did what this person does and they followed their leadership and their example, would we be fighting with each other and arrogant or would we be teachable, humble, and making disciples? We want our elders to be men that could echo Paul throughout his writings where he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. I always read that and I always thought, man, what an arrogant statement to, to, to put out there to say, be imitators of me. And then whenever I became a pastor, whenever I went to seminary and I became a pastor, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm supposed to be one of those guys. I don't think anybody should copy what I do because I have no idea what I'm doing. But here's the deal. The, the, the idea is that, that if, if I am humbly submitting myself to Christ and saying, Christ, you lead me, then, then this is kind of the, the, the conga line, right? 
Like Jesus is in the front, I'm right behind him, and I'm saying, all right, guys, get behind me, but I'm going wherever he goes. That's the way that that should look. Not like, well, Jesus went this way, but I'm going to go over here this way, and you've got to pick and choose which one you want to follow. This is the idea, is that this is how it should look. I follow Christ, and then you follow behind me. But it's not just me. It would be all of us as elders. This is what it should look like. Following this list, there's another list for the deacons. And this list, while different in the stuff that gets laid out, it kind of has the same feel to it, right? kind of has the same tenor and tone to it, a very similar list to what we just ran through. And again, as I read through it, it feels less like a specific list and more like Paul is generally trying to create a vision for what a good deacon looks like. So let me ask this question. What is a deacon anyway? Depending on the tradition you came up, the, the, the idea of a deacon may look like, like, like the guy back on the, stoops, the, back on the stoop during the pastor's sermon smoking his cigarettes and making sure that nobody uh, comes around the church, right? That may be the vision of a, of a deacon for you. That may be what, what, what a deacon looks like. It may look like the people who backstab and kind of uh, vie for power within the church and, and effectively run the church while the pastor is just a puppet. It may look like uh, the, uh, a, a board of people that functionally run the church, in which case they're functioning more like elders than they are like deacons. The reality is Scripture gives us very little information about the nature of a deacon. doesn't tell us a whole lot about what a deacon does. You can go to Acts chapter 6, and some people see that chapter as kind of the, the proto-deacons, like the, the original model for the deacons. I'm not sure if that's exactly what's happening in Acts 6 or not, but it, kind of, it, can, it can kind of give us a, a good idea. The, but I, I really think the biggest way for us to understand what a deacon is to do is to understand what the word deacon is. It's just a, a transliteration of the word diakonos, which means servant. So... so Let's, let's translate it the way we would translate it. Let's not do the transliteration where we just bring the word over because we don't know what else to say. Why, why don't we say that we have elders and we have servants? Now, nobody likes that idea because servants is a loaded word, which is why we use deacons, but that's effectively what we're saying. We have elders, overseers, and we have servants. I would say that they are the lead servants of the church. That's kind of how I would articulate it. Part of what that means is that their task is really more day-to-day, make-the-church-run kind of oriented, and less, uh, it doesn't carry with it the weight and the authority that the elders. They don't serve in the exact same way. They don't do the exact same things. In short, it seems to me that they do whatever needs to be done. That's kind of the role of a deacon. And then they officially get that title, that they are a servant of the church. Here at Providence, we don't have deacons right now. We've talked about it as elders. We've talked about, is this time for us to add deacons? We've talked about it over our history as a church. When is the right time for us to add deacons? I do think that will happen at some point. But every time that this this subject has come up as elders, and we've talked about this and debated it, uh, primarily just simply because of our size, we felt like it wasn't the right time for us to formalize that idea. But that day will come, and, and what that looks like, in all honesty, part of what we're, 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 we're hedging on as elders is that we just aren't exactly sure what a deacon ministry would look like here at Providence. We're still trying to figure that out. So before we go out and we say, all right, let's nominate some deacons, let's elect some deacons, and then be like, I have no idea what we want you to do, we need to figure out what that looks like. And so I think that will come in time. I think that will be something we will add in time. But we all in unison agreed that now was not the right time for us to do that. I would say, however, that many of our ministry leaders, our team leaders, effectively serve the church in that capacity, even though they don't have that official title. The way that we establish things here as a church is we have, we have ministry leaders, we have teams that lead our ministries, we have... Uh, like. Our children's ministry that is, that is out there right now doing their thing is a good example of that. We have Shay who is on staff and who serves our church through that. Uh, and then we have a team of people that work with, with Shay as our children's ministry team. Effectively, they all serve us as a deacon would. We just haven't formalized that process and put that in place yet where we, we put that title on people. But I think that will come at some point.
That is effectively how things work. And we can talk about all kinds of other ways. I think Beth Ann is a good example of this as well. She didn't know she was coming in this, but I think Beth Ann is a good example of this as well. She's got to figure out what in the world is going on with Forks and Friends tonight. And she was telling me today she's got, uh, she, she's got some stuff that she's got to get together. She's got some things that she has to purchase. She's got all this stuff that needs to happen. She is without a doubt serving the church in her work. Do we pay her? Is she on staff? Yes. But she effectively is serving the role of a deacon. Deacons are to help with the physical, logistical, practical needs of day-to-day ministry in the church. Essentially, what happens in Acts chapter 6, freeing up the elders for the task of spiritual leadership and shepherding. So right now, we have deacons in kind of an informal capacity, but there will likely come a day when we make a more formal move for that. We just haven't felt like it is the right time to do that. Elders, though, have a much clearer picture of what their role is supposed to be. If you were with us back at the first of the year when we were working our way through First Peter, uh, we took a long time to look at this topic. I would encourage you to go back and look at that sermon. I should probably know the date for this, but it's end of January time frame, and I can, I can probably find that somewhere before we're done here. But end of January time frame, we worked through First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Let's read those again. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. There's other passages I could read, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all these, but you go to Acts 20, Titus 1, 2 Timothy 2, James 5, that kind of fill in the gaps of this picture of what it is an elder is to do. But this picture is a good one that kind of serves our purposes this morning. What we said back in January when we looked at this was that that this text, the role of an elder, is built around sacrifice. Somewhere along the line, we have gotten the idea that the elder is supposed to be some kind of elite level Christian. We look at this list in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus 1 and we say, okay, these are what the, 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 the superhero guys look like. These are the elite level Christians, the normal level Christians. They don't quite make it up to that. We just kind of pick a couple of those guys and those are, the, those are the, the, the big ones. Elders have obtained elite status. You know, it's kind of like if you've gone to Chick-fil-A enough and you have got the status where you really get all the points that you want and you've, you've, you've obtained the elite level status, right? That's how we view elders and that there's some sort of like hierarchy that is built into the role of an elder of uh, kind of placed on an elder, hierarchy of, of greatness and kind of put us pretty close to the top as elders that, that somehow being an elder makes you greater than others. This could not be further from the picture of an elder in Scripture. For one, here at Providence, we don't want elders to be the elite members of the church body. Instead, our goal in discipleship is is not that a few men would be qualified, that, that all men would be qualified to meet Paul's criteria. His list shouldn't be unobtainable, but a bar that is put before all the men to strive for and that most obtain. That is the goal. It's not the elite status, it's the norm. This is what we should, this is what we should expect. So, so men, if you, if you read this text in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and you say, wow, all of that sounds, sounds like that's a lot. I don't, thank goodness I don't have to be all of those things. You have missed the point. The idea here is that you should be pursuing each of those things. So that whenever the time comes for God to call you and to say, all right, you are, you, are, you are to be an elder of this church, whenever the time comes for you to potentially pursue being an elder of the church, as Paul says, is a good and honorable thing, whenever that time comes, that you are, you are ready to go. That is the idea. That is what we want. So it's not the elite status, but the norm. But more to the point, the role of the elder is that, that we are here to lay down our lives on behalf of this church. When we looked at this First Peter passage earlier this year, we looked at how Peter's addressing the elders. And I talked about how it didn't make sense to me, it didn't seem to fit the flow of the book until I remembered, oh yeah, these guys are, as, as Peter says, uh, on the verge of shedding blood. Like you haven't quite shed blood yet, but you're close. 
So it made sense for him to address the elders that he is writing to there. It made sense for him to uh, address those elders because when the time comes to shed blood, they're coming for the elders first. And so he's telling them, be prepared for that day. Be ready for that day. When they come for you, you as elders are the ones that lay down your life for the sheep, following after Christ, doing exactly as Christ has done. That is the idea here. He was addressing the church on the brink of suffering, and the elders would be the first one to to be asked to stand in that gap. They would be the ones to take the first blow. And that is the role of the elders. That was the idea that we kind of framed, this is what the elders are called to do. As elders, we are called to shepherd, defend, to lead, and to care for the people of God in our church. Somehow the church today has turned the role of elder into one that is primarily about authority and power. Everything about the elders is seen through that lens. Who has power? Who doesn't? Who's allowed to have power? Who isn't? Who's allowed to call the shots? Who is not? Don't misunderstand me. There is a sense of weight and authority that comes with the role of an elder. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not taking that away. But the flavor of the role of an elder is not power and authority. It's death and sacrifice. That's what an elder should be doing. Peter's tone here is one of self-denial and deferment, not decision-making and finger-pointing and lording it over people. That's not how the good shepherd works. One of the chief callings of the elder is to shepherd God's people. And while the shepherd inevitably has duties that would require him to lead and direct the sheep, and certainly he does, A, his leadership is only only good if the the sheep are following, right? If not, the shepherd's just taking a stroll. He's He's not a shepherd at that point. He's just a guy out on a walk. But... Assuming that the people are following, his, his leadership is, is, is contingent on, on showing up, leading, and having people follow him. But the other task of the shepherd would involve self-sacrifice. It would, it would involve frustration and protection. It would involve d- defending the sheep from the wolves. It would involve going, going as, as Jesus kind of lays out, it would, it would involve going after the one while you leave the ninety-nine. And as I said, laying down your life for the sheep, that is the role of the good shepherd. The call to being an elder isn't this kind of like self-glorifying, self-aggrandizing power and authority. It's a call to all-out self-denial for the good of the congregation. Listen, I'll tell you right now, if if, if you pursue becoming an elder at Providence, and you're doing it so that you can have authority and call the shots, you're going to be sorely disappointed when you become an elder. The vast majority of decisions in this church, and when I say the vast majority, I mean the vast majority of decisions in this church are made by our ministry teams, not by us as elders. We do not see that as our primary task and our primary role. Our primary role instead is to ensure that those that are making those decisions are resourced, cared for, and and given every opportunity to flourish in their role as they serve the church. That is our primary role. We don't want to make all the decisions. We want to empower people, men and women, to make decisions and to lead in their respective areas. Our task is not to wield power, but to cultivate growth and discipleship. And it's the task of the whole church in that. You lead, we lead, not by domineering and directing, but by serving and making sure that others have everything they need to flourish. The way I always say this, if you guys haven't heard me, then you'll, you'll hear me say it more, uh, is that the, the elder is first in line to die. That is our task, first in line to die. We die to ourselves in order to ensure that others are flourishing in their following of Jesus. And it's all of this that is a much bigger reason of why I believe that the role of elder is one to be served by men, not women. I know this is controversial, but just hang with me. Not because women are incapable of it, 
Listen, I think we could probably pick five women to lead this church that are more gifted in their leadership than the five of us that are currently serving as elders at Providence. This is not a matter of gifting. This is not a matter of, of, of what God has, has given people to do. This is not a, not a matter of, of, of men can only lead because men are the only ones that are given that gifting. I do not think that that is the case at all. Men are called to the task of elders because we don't send our women to die. That is the bottom line. We don't hide behind our women to take the bullets or to endure the arrows. It's the men we send to the front line. It's the men that we call to do this. And it's the men that do this, I, I think, and, and, and are asked to do this all throughout Scripture. Scripture. The men, not the women. I think this is a pattern established in Genesis. I think it's exactly what God holds Adam to account for in Genesis after the fall. He comes to Adam. Men, all the men in here, if they've been to our basic training, they've heard me say this at least a couple of times anyway. Whenever, Adam, whenever God calls to, comes to call Adam to account for his sin, for the fall, for eating the fruit, he doesn't first say, Adam, why did you eat the fruit? He says, Adam, why did you listen to the voice of your wife? And this isn't because his wife is, is gullible. It's not because his wife is, is spiritually incapable or insufferable. It's none of those things. It's because Adam was given the task of shepherding and caring for and standing in the gap between the serpent and his wife, and he failed at that task. Now, simply because he failed doesn't mean that we say, all right, somebody else needs to jump in and do it. I think the picture that God calls us to is he says, this is what it should look like as a husband for his family and as an elder for his church. We stand in the gap to protect the serpent from the church. That is our role. And we don't send our women to do that. We don't send our women to die. Later in the New Testament, we see that Paul's teaching about headship in Ephesians chapter 5, and while it's clear that the man is the leader in the family, what's also clear is that that headship, headship should not lead him to domineering authority, but sacrificial love and service. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and did what? What is the model that we are supposed to follow in the way that Christ led the church? By, by sacrificing, dying, and giving himself up for her. That's what headship looks like. You're first in line to die. If you think headship looks like you make all the decisions, you've misread Scripture. If you think headship looks like you have all the power, you've misread Scripture. If you think headship looks like you do everything you can to ensure the fact that your wife and your children, or as an elder, your church is flourishing and the people within it, then you have a better picture of the way headship is supposed to work. And I believe that men are called to that task. It's the pattern, I believe, in the New Testament and the Old. So those things combined, the role of men as the, as the leaders within their families, the role of, of, of what Adam was supposed to take in the, uh, in the fall, the, the, the role of, of, of all of those things combined, along with the fact that Paul never mentions a woman as an elder, along with the fact that he specifically says that men are elders, I think all of those things inform our decision and our stance that men only are to be elders. But I hope you hear my heart in this. This is not out of a power grab or a sense to, to, to remain entitled or to remain in some sort of like place of authority. It is because we feel like it is our calling as men to stand in that gap and to do that. And I need to say a couple of things as we close out here because I, le legitimately we could spend months talking about the dynamics of how this plays out in so many different ways. This is a great thing for you to talk about in your discipleship group. How does that, how does that play out in your home and in your family? Men, this is why you need to be in a discipleship group because you need somebody to say, hey dude, how are you leading your family? How much do you feel like the decisions are on you? How much are you standing in the gap versus how much are you just telling people what to do? Are you a jerk? Or are you, self, are you selflessly putting your family first? You need to be in a group so somebody can call you out on that. But listen, I, I, want, you, I want you to hear me. I, last week we articulated a position 
that says that we are good with women standing up here to teach and preach. And I went through that. You'll have to go listen to that whole sermon if you have not uh, listened to that. This week, I stand up here in an articulated position in which elders and the role of elders is limited to men and reserved to men, which, which I think should be clear that we're not trying to pick sides here. We we're, make all sides mad at us. Like, we're, we're picking, we're not, we're not trying to pick sides on this. We're trying to faithfully read through Scripture, interpret and apply Scripture as best we can. And I'll just tell you right now, we may have been wrong last week. And we might be wrong this week. But as best we can, we think that this is the way that God has led us and that this is the, the proper understanding of Scripture. And I don't know how else to do that as an elder. I would love to stand up here and tell you I am 100% certain on every doctrine and everything that comes out of here. But I don't think that that's what God calls us to. I think what God says is read and apply and let the Holy Spirit guide and direct and do the best. This is the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. Could God have chosen to reveal himself and that every Sunday we come up here and we just have like a, like a, like a hologram that comes up and, and, and this hologram is, is the Holy Spirit that just utters the truth that everyone perfectly understands? He could have. He absolutely could have. But instead he chose us to give, a, a, give us a word that was written 2,000 years ago or longer and the Holy Spirit to interpret and apply that word. All we can do then is preach as humbly as we can, teach as, as humbly as we can, and do all we can to apply those scriptures as faithfully as we can. That's what we're trying to do. These issues are not issues that I think are make or break first order issues of a church, although I understand for, for some of you or maybe, maybe even for a lot of you, I, I don't know what all the discussion has been. For many of you, it may be one of those things. I don't think it rises to that level, but it obviously has implications in the way that we do things and the way that we apply the scriptures. And those, those implications are both unavoidable and, and frankly, we're, we're completely comfortable with those implications as well. We're not like holding our nose and being like, okay, I guess we'll let women teach. Okay, I guess it's just for men. We, confident, we confidently stand on these scriptures in this way and apply these scriptures in this way. But we also humbly confess that we, we are not perfect. And this side of heaven, God has not called us to that. But he has called us to be faithful. And that is our task and that is our goal. I'm going to pray for us now. We're going to end here this morning. I'll have a little bit more to say whenever we have our prayer time and kind of just lay out a couple of things for you to be praying about that will be coming up. But this is where we'll end this morning. But I just want you to know, like these, these messages have obviously taken a different tone. They've talked about very contentious things. But these are things we can and should talk about. And it's good for us to wrestle with these things together as a church and to work through these things together as a church. And I hope that what comes out of this is not a church that is fractured and divided, but a church that is unified. Again, not uniform, but is unified around the scriptures, and around Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning we humbly bow before your word. We humbly ask that the Spirit would write the truth on our hearts, that where there is agreement, that our hearts would, would sing with joy, that where there is disagreement, that our hearts will, uh, will, will default to humility and care and love. that in all things there would be charity and love. Father, I pray most of all that you are glorified in it all. Father, I pray for the men here of Providence that, that maybe have read this and have not felt challenged, that have listened to this sermon this morning and have just assumed that I'm talking about someone else. Father, I pray for conviction this morning, that you would not let a man, a man leave this room feeling like, ah, eh, that's just not me but instead that you would convict them that, that this is what you've called us all to. And Father, I pray for the women here this morning that hear this message. Father, I, I pray for, uh, for, for their hearts and for um, even their own kind of response to it, that, uh, that, that they would hear our heart behind this and, our, and, and what, what it is that we want to do in applying the scriptures. And I pray for all of us that we would humbly submit to following 
Christ. And that any imitation that is called for would be an imitation that's rooted in our following of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to enter into a time of prayer together. Um, Just a time to um, corporately confess and work through some things together and to, to, um, to bring before God things that, that kind of come out of what we talked about. And I, got, I got two things here, so we'll do the first and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll do the second. The, the first is, um, at the risk of sounding a little bit uh, self-serving here, uh, I'm going to ask that you guys would pray for the elders and that you guys would uh, pray. Um, I, I would argue after, after what I've I mean, honestly, how I've served alongside these guys for, for years now, but especially over the course of the last uh, year to 18 months, I, I think it is more than appropriate for you to, to pray a prayer of gratefulness for the men that have led this church and that are leading this church. So I would encourage you to do that. Um, but also just to pray. The, 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 last, uh, the, the last year or so working through some of this stuff has been taxing. It's, it's pushed uh, a, a lot of these guys, and we'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a second, but it's pushed a lot of these guys. It's pushed a lot of us as we've gone through this, and so we, we covet your prayers, and so we w- I would ask that you would pray uh, a prayer of gratefulness and just a, a prayer for, for um, these men that, that God would bless them for their efforts and the way that they have served you uh, over the course of the last, um, the last couple of years. Uh, I would also ask that you would pray for those that are serving in I, whatever capacity, if you want to attach the word deacon to it or not, then that's totally up to you. But don't you think about all that, all that was required, all the people that served you so that you could come here this morning and do this, from uh, this band that is standing up here, from the guys that are back in the back, to the, the, the greeting team out there with the name tags, to the, 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 everybody that's out here serving with the kids, to uh, who, who knows, we can talk about all kinds of other things, to the finance team, the missions team, so many others, so many things that, you, that, that, that have to happen that you'll never see, that you never know. Um, whether it's, it's the hours spent practicing these songs so that, so that you guys can stand here and sing them, uh, or, or whether it's the brainstorming about how to make people feel comfortable when they walk in the door, or, or what costumes the kids wear out here and, and how to go crazy so that the kids can have fun and see Jesus through goofing off a little bit, um, and, and a hundred other things. I would ask that you offer up a prayer of gratefulness on behalf of these people that have served so well. And, and even now, thinking about this afternoon and, and fortune friends and all that goes into that, all that has to happen from Beth Ann to a handful of other people to make that, that event happen, I just ask that you would pray for them. So let's just take a few minutes to pray. As you guys continue to pray, one more thing for you to consider. 
one thing that has been clear over the course of the last six months as we have talked as elders is that um, we could use some help. And so for just the third time in the life of Providence Church, uh, we will begin the process next week. There'll be ballots available for you next week, and this will run through the end of the year. Uh, there will be an open nomination process for us to uh, for us to add elders here at Providence. And so I would just ask that you would pray that God would bring the, those men to the to the forefront, those that would serve in that capacity, those that that God would um, even maybe right now that are sitting out here thinking, well, that's not me, but I'll pray for somebody else that perhaps God would begin working in someone's life that over the course of the the next few weeks and months that uh, God would bring the right people forward. In the times that we've added elders here at Providence, it's never gone exactly how we kind of thought it would heading into the process. God has always brought forth different people and and put people in place here uh, to be elders that... um, that I, think, that I don't think they expected to be in that place. And so I just ask that you would begin the process of prayer and that you would not stop praying for that process until it is finished. Um, Satan, no doubt, looks for opportunities to create division. He is, he is scouring the earth for ways to destroy God's people and devour God's people. Uh, and uh, covering these texts as we have in the last three weeks is no doubt... Uh, a foothold that he will try to grab onto, and then whenever you open up the process of elder nominations and bringing new leaders into place here, certainly uh, if he can find an opportunity, he will take it. And so I would ask that you would pray that we would be protected from the schemes of, the, of Satan, that we would be protected from his fiery arrows, and that as a church we would be unified in this process. Let's continue praying.